Not everybody in the first century church located in Thyatira had been seduced by the prophetess Jezebel and her doctrines of Satan. Just as was true during the time when the Thyatira type of church dominated Christendom. As we learned in our previous lesson, there were those groups of people who opposed the papal church and her authority. And in spite of tremendous pressure, they held fast to the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. We must remember that in the first century city of Thyatira, there was only one Christian church. When Jezebel began to convince the bulk of the members of her church that it was okay for them to mix and mingle with the pagans and to commit fornication and to eat those things sacrificed to idols, as it told us in Revelation 2.20, a believing, uncompromising Christian couldn't just move his membership down the street to another church. There was no other church, Christian church, in Thyatira. And the same was essentially true during the time when Roman Catholicism dominated Christendom. Those members who truly trusted with saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't just join a Bible-believing evangelical true church down the street. It wasn't that simple. A true believer, if at all vocal or uncompromising, would have been tried by one of the inquisitions and tortured to renounce his beliefs that were contrary to Catholic doctrine and possibly even burned at the stake if he or she would not renounce those beliefs. Now, as we've already learned, there were, in fact, more people martyred for their faith by the Catholic Church. In other words, there were more people martyred in the name of Christ than there were Jews and Christians who were martyred under the reign of those ten persecuting Roman emperors all the way from Nero to Diocletian, and that is pretty amazing. So it is to the true believers in the Thyatira Church and in the Thyatiran time of church history that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke words of understanding admonition in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. And this is where we're going to pick up our study on the Lord's Revelation letter to the church at Thyatira. This is part 3 of our study. And then we're going to conclude this letter by considering his promised award to the overcomers, which we'll see in verses 26 to 28, and then his appeal in verse 29. So let's begin by... Um, continuing our study of the fourth part of our outline, the Declaration from Christ, and look at Part C. We have already looked at Part A, his approval, Part B, his accusation, and now we're going to look at Part C, his admonition. So if you'd look with me at Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, we'll read those at this time. It says, and this is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ speaking, But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, speaking of the doctrine of Jezebel, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. In these verses, the Son of God who searches the reins and the hearts of all men with his penetrating eyes like flames of fire, distinguished between the true and the false church members. Now he, of course, we know back in Matthew uh, 16, 18, I believe it is, had said that the gates of hell itself would not prevail against his church. And he was speaking there of his true church. You know, all those people who are truly born again make up his true church. And so when he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, that's what he's speaking of, his true church, not Christendom. Uh, he has always had, even in the darkest times of church history, and of course we're finishing up our look at the church of the dark ages, when Christendom actually got its darkest. Maybe not. Maybe it's, maybe it's in the lukewarm stage where we are today. But anyway, he's always had, even in the darkest times, whenever the darkest times have been, he's always had his faithful remnant, just as he always had a faithful remnant in Israel. Even when Israel went apostate and she rejected him, her own Messiah, he still had his remnant. He, so he also has his remnant in the church. Now, apparently, the situation in Thyatira, the city of trade guilds, had gone too far 
into compromising with worldliness and with paganism under Jezebel's influence. It had gone too far for the remnant of those true believers to really be able to do much about it. You know, there very sadly comes a time in the life of many churches when those who hold to true doctrine and to the issues of, of separation and holiness when they are in the minority and it becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible, for them to turn things around. So the Lord did not ask for his remnant in the Thyatiran church to attempt to do the impossible. He himself had already asked the church to repent. Back in verses 21 and 22, he had asked the church to repent. Therefore, if she would not repent when he asked her to, which she didn't, we're told, it says, and she did not, she would not repent, then there was really nothing mere men could say to her which would make her repent. And therefore, in verse 24, the Lord said to those who were not seduced by the doctrine of Jezebel and who did not know the depths of Satan, he said to them that he would not add to them any other burden other than what they were already experiencing. You know, it was difficult enough for a, a Thyatiran church Christian, a real Christian, to renounce his membership in a trade guild and consequently lose his ability to support his own family. And it was difficult enough for him to withstand the pagan influence, which was all around him. Think about that. Not only in his society, but it was all around him where else? In, his ch- in the church. And like I said, he couldn't just move his membership down to another church. That was the only Christian church in Thyatira. And it was difficult enough to be ostracized not only by the world, which would bring him to financial ruin, but to be mocked and to be scorned in his church as some kind of a holy roller, you know, one who wouldn't go along with the rest of them. One who wouldn't mingle. You know what people say about people like that who want to stay with the doctrines of separation and holiness. They, they categorize them as being a little bit too fanatical and too, what, what's the favorite word? Legalistic? Legalistic or uh, too fundamental or did I hear intolerant? Is that what you said? Intolerant, exactly. Too intolerant. So, you know, it's bad enough to be mocked by the world, but when you come to church and then you're mocked by the church, that's a heavy burden. Furthermore, it was also difficult enough for the Lord's own true children to stand against the strong and the, and the mighty arm of the papal church and not only lose their right to make a living, but also lose their property and very possibly their lives. So to these people, the compassionate Lord Jesus would not add any further burden. He had no special demand to make of them except to hold fast. He tells them, I guess it's verse 24, hold fast until he would come. Now, if we look at his words carefully, we see that he was telling these true believers here to hold fast onto that which they already had, which would be the true doctrines of the Word of God. The... the we have the Word of God, don't we? We have it in front of us. We have it on our laps. And it is to this, to the Word of God, to the truth of the Word of God, that you and I also should hold fast until the Lord comes. And that's not easy to do in this day and age either. We're about in the same position they were in, you know, being mocked, sometimes even in the church, for holding fast to the true doctrines. The Thyatiran believers were being admonished to hang in there and to maintain their testimony for the Lord by keeping themselves separate from pagan influence and and from corruption with worldliness until he himself would step in. He would come back in order to correct things. In verse 25, we have the very first time the Lord refers in these seven church letters to his return. The first three churches, remember, the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and the church at uh, Pergamos, all had specific times in church history when they ended as the dominant type of church. 
But the last four churches, and we've talked about this before, the last four churches will each continue until the Lord's second coming. So now for the first time in the church, the letter to the church at Thyatira, we have a reference to the Lord's return because this church will continue right on until the Lord comes. To the faithful and the true remnant of the Thyatiran church and to the faithful and true believers in the Thyatiran time of church history, Jesus Christ is admonishing them to simply hold fast and to wait for him to come, his return. Now, some commentators have suggested that the Lord's reference to adding none other burden to these believers has to do with the time of tribulation, you know, the seven years of tribulation on earth, which he had mentioned in the preceding verses. See, they see this in the context. And he had just talked about the fact that um, unless she repents, he would cast her into a bed of great tribulation. That's in verse 22. And in verse 23, he said that he would kill her children with death. Speaking of... um, the second death, and some say that actually that word for death there could be a reference to pestilence, and we know there will indeed be many pestilences during the time of tribulation. So in light of the context here, some commentators say that um, he was telling those who did not have the doctrines of Jezebel and who did not know the depths of Satan that he would put no other burden upon them. So this, they say, could very possibly be understood as the Lord's promise to true believers that they would not be cast into that time of tribulation. They wouldn't have the burden, the extra burden, of being cast into the bed of the great tribulation on earth. And if this is true, then this would definitely be a support for a a pre-tribulation rapture. You know, that the rapture of the church would occur before the tribulation. Now, please notice that this entire letter, the whole letter, was really addressed to the faithful remnant, these true believers in the Thyatiran church. Jezebel, if you notice, Jezebel and all of her followers are referred to repeatedly as she or her and as they For example, look at verse 24. It says, the depths of Satan as who speaks? As they speak. You see, even though the followers of Jezebel dominated this church, they were in the majority, they were not really in the Lord's sight, they were not really his true church. And, of course, he sees with those all-knowing, all-penetrating eyes. He knows Uh, who's the true and who's the false. His true church consisted of those in this letter whom he addressed as you, or you see the word ye. And it is to these overcomers, they're the overcomers, aren't they? They're the overcomers. It's to them he gives the two glorious promises that we find in verses 26 to 28. So let's move on and look at his promised award, starting at verse 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works until the end, unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. The first promise that the Lord made to the overcomers in the Thyatiran church letter is that they will live and reign with Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth and when he rules over this earth for a thousand years with a rod of what? A rod of iron. Verses 26 and 27 are taken directly from Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9. The psalm tells us, if you would refer back to it, that psalm tells us that after the kings of the earth... And the nations of the earth are gathered together in the valley of Megiddo. It doesn't say that, but when we piece the Bible together, we know that's where they'll be gathered, the battle of Armageddon, to take counsel to fight against the anointed of the Lord. And who is the anointed of the Lord? The Christ, the Lord Jesus. When they gather together to fight against Christ, a decree from heaven is issued. At this point, God from heaven speaks, and he says, this is right out of Psalm 2, Thou art my son. 
This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Did you know that this is the only place in the Old Testament where Christ is specifically referred to as the Son of God? And I thought that was really interesting in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus described himself as how, who, in this letter, right, as the Son of God in this letter to the Thyatirans. What we have in Psalm 2 is the decree which will be issued from heaven right before the Lord Jesus comes to execute judgment here upon the earth, you know, among, on all of the unbelieving nations of the world and um, then establish his kingdom. And this also ties in with the Lord's description of himself to this particular church. In verse 18, he had designated himself not only as the son of God, but he had said that he was the one with eyes like unto flames of fire and with feet like fine brass. You know, it speaks of judgment. When he comes which we read about in chapter 19 of Revelation. When he comes in judgment, he is going to dash to pieces like a potter's vessel those who have rebelled against him. And then, of course, he will set up his benevolent theocracy here on earth. And it will be a kingdom of perfect justice. Hallelujah. Can't wait for that. I'm so sick of our justice system. Uh, perfect justice and perfect righteousness, which uh, he will rule with that rod of iron. I mean, they, there won't be any overt sin in that kingdom at all. Well, the promise, the great and wonderful promise to not only Thyatira true believers, overcomers, but to all overcomers and anyone who is an overcomer because of their faith in Christ, is that we are promised a position of leadership and authority under Christ in the millennial kingdom. That's a wow, isn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine reigning over this earth with Christ? That's the promised award to those of us who are overcomers. He, um, the overcomer in the Thyatiran church and in the Thyatiran stage of church history may have been lorded over by an unbiblical priestly hierarchy under Catholicism, but in the kingdom of Christ, he is going to be the one who will rule and reign, not with a man named the Pope, but with the true head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Believers of the church will reign with Christ as joint heirs of his kingdom. That's just phenomenal when I think about that. I just cannot imagine being given a little piece of this earth to rule and reign over. But that's what our promise is. And we will reign in righteousness and justice because then we will be perfect and glorified, not in our sinful human natures. Romans eight seventeen tells us, and if children, which is what we are, if we know Christ, we're his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, you see the Thyatiran church Christians suffered, didn't they? As did those during that stage of church history. It says, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together with him. The believer in his suffering in this life has identification with Christ because Christ definitely suffered in his earthly life. But we will also have further identification with him in the future kingdom. Now, the overcomer has promised something else in this letter. He's promised the morning star. And I don't know which is better, to be a ruler with Christ or to receive the morning star. What is meant by the term the morning star? Well, the answer is supplied to us in the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16 where the Lord himself gave us the explanation. He said, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. And then he says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So who is the morning star? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting when we look at that verse, if you want to flip over there, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 
in his relationship to Israel, Christ speaks of his connection with David's ancestry. So when he says, I am the root and the offspring of David, he's speaking about his relationship to Israel. But for the church, he is the bright and morning star. Actually, if we look elsewhere in the scripture, to Israel... The Lord Jesus Christ is the son of righteousness. In Malachi 4, 2, we are told, But unto you that fear my name, that's speaking of Israel, unto those, the remnant in Israel who fears God's name, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. I love that. That's in Malachi 4, 2. So to Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the son of righteousness. And that's spelled S-U-N. He's the son of righteousness. He's also the S-O-N of righteousness, isn't he? The Lord Jesus, you see, will bring righteousness and he will bring healing to Israel after her darkest hour of judgment and sorrow and suffering, which will be during the time of the Great Tribulation. At the conclusion of that horrible hour, which is needed, it's needed for her purification and for other reasons that we'll talk about when we get into the Tribulation. But at the end of that horrible hour, the Lord Jesus will return at the time of his second coming. And in doing so, he will at long last bring light to her, to Israel. He will be her son of righteousness, and she will be spiritually healed at long last. That's to Israel, and that's what he says in the first part of Revelation twenty-two sixteen. you know, giving reference to the fact that he's, uh, and he, he came from the root and offspring of David. But to the church, the Lord Jesus is the morning star. Right before the dawn of a brand new day, Right before the rising of the sun, the sunset, the sun, sunrise, Venus appears in the sky. And she is referred to, is a planet a she? Yeah, I guess so. Earth is a she. All right. She's referred to by astronomers as the morning star. So the bright shining of the morning star, the bright shining of Venus, heralds the soon coming of the what? Of the sun. As soon as they see Venus in the sky, bright and shining, they know that very soon after that, the sun will appear. Now, very possibly what the Lord Jesus was telling believers is that the rapture of the church, which is the catching away of the saints of the church age, that this will occur before the return of Christ. Remember, we talked about the fact that there's two aspects of his, of the second coming. There's the rapture and the return. In other words, he promised overcomers that he, the morning star, will come and remove them from the hour of darkness before he then returns as the son of righteousness to Israel, for Israel. You see, when he comes for the church, he saves the church. Not that he saves the church, you know, spiritually speaking. He saves the church, physically speaking, from going through the time of tribulation. When he comes in his return for Israel, he saves Israel. Actually, she is spiritually saved. He also saves her physically because she will be demolished if he didn't come. Now, this is the same promise that we find in Revelation 3.10, by the way. In the Lord's words there to the overcomers of the church at Philadelphia, he says to them, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world. Only one hour of temptation that will come upon all the world since the flood. And that'll be the time of tribulation, to try them that dwell upon the earth. And then he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now remember, it always gets the very darkest when? Right. It always gets the very darkest right before the arrival, actually, of that morning star. It helps to lighten up the sky right before then comes the sun. So I just wanted to give you a word of encouragement because we're living in very, very frightening, dark times. 
you know, I, I, I just read something that said people are watching less and less news, and the news broadcasters are really, want, you know, worried about this. But I think the reason that we're not turning on our televisions as much is because it's so dark and it's so depressing. I mean, after you watch the news, you, aren't you sort of depressed? Well, don't fret and don't get depressed because it's always the darkest right before the dawn. So I think it, it's something we should get excited about, the fact that the world is really, really dark right now because it only means that the arrival of the morning star is that much sooner. And with the morning star, I believe, comes the rapture of the church. So that is exciting. And with that, I say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Well, then he finishes up with his appeal, which is always the same. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This now is for the first time that the Lord Jesus put his appeal behind his promised award. The first three churches, the appeal came first, and then the award. Now, the last four... The award comes first, and then the appeal, and as we talked about, that demonstrates to us that there is a difference in the grouping of the seven churches. The first three are in one group, and the last four are in another group. So he um, says that this is not only an appeal for those who were in the church at Thyatira, but it is an appeal for all churches, because he says churches, plural. It's also an appeal for all Christians. Now, I know that this message... To the Thyatiran church, and this has been two and a half lessons we've been looking at it, I know that this has not been an easy message to hear. I can guarantee you it has not been an easy message to teach either. But let us pray, and I know this is true especially for those who have grown up in Catholicism or the Orthodox religion, but we need to pray that those with spiritual ears will take what they have heard and that they will, above all else, you know, apply it to their lives and do whatever the Spirit tells them to do with what they have heard. I pray, is my prayer, that they will put what they have heard above tradition, above their family, if need be, and I know it's difficult if you have family in a church for you to be the one to leave it. I had to do that, and it is not easy. That they would put it above friendships and that they would put it above their culture or whatever. That the truth would always, always come first. And that the Holy Spirit of the living Lord would tell them what to do and that they would be obedient. I have a little poem somewhere here that I wrote regarding this church at Thyatira that I'll read to you at this time. And unto the angel who guards o'er this church, old John the Apostle did write, the words of Christ Jesus, God's own beloved Son, whose eyes are like flames in the night. I know of thy works and thy service and love, thy works at the last being more, but nevertheless, though thy works I commend, thou hast tolerated a whore. That prophetess Jezebel thou hast let in, her lies and corruptions to teach. The doctrines of pagans she's brought to my church. From God, she claims, comes her speech. It's okay, she whispers, to add to God's word and with the worldly to mix. Yes, mingle, she laughs, and bring in their gods. It's really just wise politics. The deep things of Satan are subtle, my church. Test with my word all you hear. Traditions and customs to which you've grown fond may not be all they appear. Oh, listen, my child, they've cluttered the clean and hidden my pearl from view. For I am the way of salvation alone, and my word alone is what's true. Listen, my children, who still keep my name, hold fast, my coming's not far. To all overcomers I grant that you'll reign with me, the bright morning star. Well, let's move on now to the fifth church, the church at Sardis. Now, all you Protestants have thought you've had it so easy. And here we go. <laughs> we get into the church that represents...
Protestantism. As we come now to the fifth letter to the fifth church, we come to our study of the church at Sardis. And this is the church which represents the fifth stage in church history, which was the stage of the Reformation, which we officially say began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg. And uh, that was on October 31st, 1517. So we say that this stage officially began. There were pre-reformers, of course, but officially, if you want to give it a date, we give it the date of 1517 A.D. And it ended, although it continues, you know, we have Protestant churches today, right? Continues till the time of the Lord's return. But officially, when it dominated... Um, that st- stage in church history, we could say it ended around 1750 when missionary work blossomed and took us into the Philadelphian stage of church history, which I can't wait to get to. See, Sardis, that's the Reformation stage. Actually, there were the, the, good, the good remnant, as always, in the Sardis stage, and then there were those that we'll look at who fell asleep, and they were spiritually dead. So you see, from the Reformed Church, the Church of the Reformation, came two branches. And from the good ones, we get the Church at Philadelphia, that stage. And from the dead ones, what do you think we get? Laodicea. Now, what did the word Sardis mean in Greek? Do you remember? Very appropriately, it means those escaping. I, want to, I just want to share something with you because every time, and I haven't had this happen to me in a long, long time, but when I was a younger Christian and I would get my doubts as Satan likes to shoot us with arrows sometimes and get us to doubt our faith and doubt, you know, what if it isn't really true and all these scary things. And I had a girl in the night study approach me not too long ago and she was having doubts about, you know, how do I know it's really true? Whenever I have that, you know what I go back to? One of the first things besides the great 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel, I go to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 because whenever I look at them, I realize that there is no way that this is a God, a man written book. There is not a shadow of a doubt by anybody that Revelation was written in the first century. There is no way that John the Apostle would have known the course of church history. And the meanings of these names, to me, just still give me goosebumps. And I've known about them for years. But it still gives me goosebumps to see how the Lord in his sovereignty gave these seven churches the names that fit so appropriately with the course of church history. But why should I be amazed? He gave us the whole history of of the Gentile world in the book of Daniel. And the only thing missing in the whole history of the book of Daniel was the church age because see that was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets he gave us the whole history of you know all that Babylon uh, Medo-Persia Greece and Rome you know down the statue what nation what empires would conquer and and then the revived Roman Empire the ten toes the the stage that we're going to see in the last days that's already forming so he gave us that whole history so why should it amaze us that he also you know gave us the history of the one thing we were missing which was the church age and that's what he supplies to us in chapters two and three it's incredible and how bible teachers you know can say just amazing me how they can say it isn't prophetic it is the word sardis means escaping ones or remnant and very appropriately as we've seen has been true with each one of these churches It corresponds to the time when men escaped the remnant, which it also means that the remnant escaped from the domination of the Roman Catholic Church, which had been dominating Christendom for about 800 years. This church, Sardis, represents the state churches of the Reformation, which escaped from Rome, only to fall, sadly, eventually, into cold, lifeless formalism. To the representative of the stage in church history, which began so wondrously and so vibrantly that men and women were willing to give their very lives for the true gospel message, the Lord spoke these very solemn words. Look at um, verse 1. 
He said, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art what? Dead. Now that's solemn, and that's serious. And we might ask in total amazement how this could be after the blessings and the revival of the Reformation. How could this possibly be that they're dead? However, when we learn, as we will next week, that some of the various denominations which have developed from the Reformation became state churches, which sought, you know, to include entire populations of a country by way of infant baptism, a practice which was not corrected from Romanism in many of the Reformation churches. When we understand this, then we can understand why these churches, although fundamental in most of their doctrines, largely became comprised in time over, uh, comprised with congregations of unsaved people. Many of them. Truly nothing can be more tragic than large congregations of people getting together, joined together as quote-unquote Christians, taking the Lord's Supper, zealous for their church, involved in all kinds of activity for their church, and largely devoid of having a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, trusting instead in their heritage you know, their good name. Christ says here that they have a name. They have a good name. They're trusting in that, though, and in their forms and in their creeds, and they all have good creeds, and in their ceremonies and in their church membership instead of trusting in who? In the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more tragic than dead orthodoxy. And I don't mean Greek orthodoxy. I mean, you know, the fundamental, the fundamentals of the faith. There's nothing more tragic than dead fundamentalism or dead uh, traditionalism or dead liberalism in Protestant churches. The services are dead, they're dull, they're lifeless. They're irrelevant to life, and most tragically, they're irrelevant to eternal life, to eternity. No wonder, then, to the dead church, the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse uh, 2, I think it is, yeah. He says, be watchful. He's telling them, wake up. Come alive. Wake up from your spiritual stupor. Wake up from your... Your death. You see, Sardis was a church which, while at one time it had been very, very much alive, you know, at the beginning, very much alive and well and vibrant and full of vision and hope and steadfastness, yet it had soon fallen asleep because it failed to keep watch, it failed to keep guard. Consequently, due, due to its own neglect, it had allowed the light of the gospel to just about be completely extinguished. And the power of the Holy Spirit had all but been removed except within that remnant again, those true believers. The rest of the church, according to the Lord's own words, not mine, you know, I'm not the one coming down on Protestantism. I am a Protestant. <laughs> These are the Lord's words. He says to the rest of the church that it is dead. Now, it's very, very sad to watch a church die. Why do churches die? Well, some die because tradition kills the vision. Have you ever heard people say, well, we've never done it like that before. This is our tradition. You know, this is the way we do it. We've always done it this way. Some die because of prejudice. We don't want anybody new coming into our church. You know, we're one big, one little happy family just the way we are. And we like it that way. We don't want these newcomers coming in and taking our church away from us. So some die because of prejudice. And some die when apathy replaces fervor. 
And this can be caused by a loss of first love. We've already seen that, the church of Ephesus. It can also be caused when people become weary in well-doing. But the number one thing that causes a church to die, the number one thing that kills a church is for it to stop evangelizing. When a church, or even when an individual Christian, stops preaching, stops telling others about the gospel message of salvation in the shed blood and the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when it stops telling people how to be born again into God's kingdom through faith alone in Jesus Christ, then that church or that individual Christian is going to start to turn inward and soon self-destruct. When we get our eyes off of the lost people in the world, and when we get them focused instead on ourselves and our, on our own little church family and on our own little individual problems and situations, then we have truly lost our spiritual vision. And where there is no vision, what happens to the people? Where there is no vision, the people perish. Not only is a church which doesn't evangelize disobeying the Lord's great commission, but it is self-destructing. Because without new converts, without new true converts, that church is going to stagnate. And it is going to stop growing and then it's going to die. Now, this morning we're going to look at part one of our study of the Sardis Church Letter. As first of all, we're going to consider, as we've been doing, the details that are known to us about the actual city of Sardis, the first century city. Then we'll look at the details that we know about the church which existed there. And then we're going to conclude our lesson this morning by taking a look at how the resurrected Lord Jesus described himself to this church and what significance it had in light of the circumstances of this church and the stage in church history which it represented. So let's look just at verse, well, let's read the whole letter so you get an overview of the whole letter. It's only six verses. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We're only going to look today at verse 1. Sardis, first of all, the details about the city. Sardis was located approximately 35, um, had a pen here somewhere, lost it. Anyway, about 35 miles south of Thyatira. It stood on the northern slope of Mount Timolus on a spur of a mountain. The city actually um, existed on like a plateau that stuck out of Mount Timolus. Now, at the base of that mountain was the Pactolus River. That was, I think, I have to write a poem about Timolus and Pactolus. <laughs> Anyway, Pactolus River, and it formed a moat around this city. So if you could get a picture of where the city's located, or was located, there's a mountain with a plateau or a spur sticking out of it. There's the city, and underneath is a river which forms a moat around the city. So it was, from a military standpoint, this city was just about impregnable. It was a very difficult city to attack. Sardis was a commercial and an industrial city. It was located at the junction of five roads. Its glory 
just as the um, the stage in church history, which this church represents, its glory was in its past. And we'll discuss more about that in a moment. Now, the city of Sardis was known for its fruit and for its wool, from which it um, manufactured white woolen garments. You notice how many times in this letter we read about raiment or garments, which is significant. It um, produced white garments, and also they were known for their woolen carpets. And it was um, in Sardis that the art of dyeing wool was first invented. Also, Aesop, of the famous Aesop fables, he was from Sardis. The main religion in Sardis, in addition to Caesar worship, was the worship of Artemis. He was, or she was, the goddess of birth and of um, hunting. Sardis was an um, extremely wealthy city because gold was found to be um, in the sand of that Pactolus River. Actually, it was in Sardis that gold and silver coins were first struck. It tells us in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia that the peasants who work the soil around the ruins of Sardis have found in abundance golden coins which date back from this period. Wouldn't that be fun to be, you know, working in your in your garden and find golden coins? Well, they have these peasants have been finding these golden coins for quite some time. And that's very interesting when we remember that the fifth church of Sardis corresponds to the fifth parable in Matthew 13, which is the parable of the what? Yes, the hidden treasure. In Matthew 13, 14, the Lord Jesus had said this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. Neat, huh? Which when a man has found, he hides and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. I bet some of those peasants in Sardis are are gathering all they can to buy the fields around the area. The men and the women of the Reformation truly, truly found a hidden treasure, didn't they, in the Word of God, when they rediscovered the foundational truths of the Christian faith, particularly the truth that salvation is by grace through faith alone and not through sacramental works. That was a rich treasure. It was always in the Bible, but it had gotten lost. People didn't see it. They weren't told about it. Those early reformers were truly filled with tremendous joy, just as the ones in the Lord's parable. And they were willing to literally give all that they had, including their lives, to obtain that truth, not only for themselves, but for future generations. And I'm thankful for that. And I know you are too. In the 6th century B.C., Sardis was one of the greatest cities of the world. Who's ever heard of it today? Well, in the 6th century, it was B.C., it was the greatest city in the world, one of them. It had been the ancient capital of Lydia, and it was once ruled by a very famous king, King Croesus of Sardis. And his name has been, uh, it has become synonymous with immense wealth. Have you ever heard anybody say to be as rich as Croesus? He was a king of Sardis. Or if you haven't heard of that, have you ever heard of King Midas? It's the same man. In Greek, he was known as Midas. It was said that everything he touched turned to gold, right? Didn't the story go that he touched his daughter one day and she turned to gold? That's not true. That part isn't true. (laughs) But he was a true person. Croesus was captured and dethroned by King Cyrus of Persia in 546 B.C. And it is said that when Cyrus moved into the city of Sardis, he found the equivalent of $6 million in riches. And that gives us another example of finding a hidden treasure. Cyrus found a hidden treasure. Sir William Ramsey said about the city of Sardis that there was no greater example than Sardis 
of the melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. And think of all these things in light of Protestantism. As already mentioned, this ancient capital city of Lydia was almost impregnable because there was really only one way into the city, and that was up a mountain 1,500 feet. First of all, you had to cross over the river, then up a mountain 1,500 feet. And, of course, the city was surrounded by a wall, and who do you think would be standing on the wall watching you? The guards, of course. So it was practically impregnable. And this made it very, very difficult for an invading army to take the city in warfare. Well, in 1549, I just have that up there for you to look at something. In 1549, King Croesus, who was not at all satisfied with his tremendous wealth and with his domain, because there is no satisfaction in mammon, is there, or in materialism. You know, he, if you have a lot, you always want more. Well, that's what happened with Croesus. He decided that he wanted more wealth and he wanted more territory over which to reign. So he determined that he would attack King Cyrus of Persia. First of of course, as they, most of the kings, the pagan kings in that day did, first he went to um, a false prophetess. He went to the Oracle of Delphi. She was sort of, you know, a, a fortune teller to get advice on how to attack. Now, the oracle told him this. She said, if you cross the river Halys, a great empire will be destroyed. That's what she said to him. Well, he took that statement as a prophecy that he would win and consequently destroy the great Persian empire. So what did he do? He very brazenly crossed over the river Halys, and he very soon became the loser of the conflict, the attack. But that didn't disturb him too much because he knew that he could retreat back to his city, so safely located there on Mount Timolus, and withstand any siege that King Cyrus could wage against him. So he returned with his army to Sardis, and he closed up the city. And for two weeks, Cyrus waged battle against him to no avail. Finally, Cyrus, the Persian king, promised his, after two weeks, he promised his soldiers a reward, a bountiful reward for any of them who could find a way into the city of Sardis. One of the men on the 14th day of the siege was watching the Sardis, the Sard, Sardian, reminds me of sardines, but he was watching the Sardian soldiers up on the walls and up on the watchtowers high above him when he noticed that one of those soldiers dropped his helmet. This is true. History is interesting, isn't it? One of the soldiers dropped his helmet. The helmet rolled down the side of a steep hill, and then the soldier, in order to retrieve it, made his way down the precipice, showing the watching Persian soldier a very easy way down the mountain. That night, the Persian soldier took a number of other soldiers with him, and they went up the mountain exactly the same way that the, the, sol the Sardian soldier had come down to get his helmet. Now, the guards of the city were not on duty. They were not watching. I don't know, maybe they were playing poker. I don't know what they were doing, but they were not on duty because they didn't expect for anyone to attack him, attack them that way, especially at night. So the Persian soldiers quietly slipped into the city and they opened the gates. And they let Cyrus and the waiting Persian army right on in. And Croesus and the entire city were completely taken. Sardis then became the western capital of the Persian Empire. So Sardis was taken, why? Because it had not been on guard. It had not been watching. Her soldiers had been sleeping instead of being watchful. So how appropriate is it then that the Lord warned the church located in Sardis to be what? 
Be watchful. Look at verse 2. Be watchful. Wake up. Then years later, if you think that was interesting, they repeat the same thing. Years later, in 334 B.C., this strategically positioned city surrendered without even a battle to Alexander the Great. And I don't know the reason for that, but without even a battle. Then in 214 B.C., Antiochus the Great took Sardis in very much the same way as Cyrus. The Sardian soldiers once again failed to keep guard. And a Cretan, a Greek soldier, slipped over the wall when no one was looking because they weren't on guard. He slipped over the wall and he opened the gates. (laughs) And um, Antiochus Epiphanes walked right in with his army and took the city again. So in just a brief history of of this city, we find that at least twice she was taken by surprise and conquered because she had not been on guard. You see, her error, her mistake, was that she had been relying on her position. And consequently, she neglected her practice. How appropriate. She neglected uh, her practice of being watchful against the subtle, quiet attacks of the enemy. So Sardis represents individual churches and individual Christians as well as the Reformation stage of church history. Sardis was a, a city which was resting in its ease. It was resting in its past. It was resting in its, in its glory, its past glory, and in its heritage, in its name, and in its position. By the time that John sent Sardis the Lord Jesus' letter, the city was dying. Her days of glory were past. She was degenerate, and so was the church located within her. You see, in this letter, the Lord Jesus has not one word of commendation to say to the church. That's a hard blow to we who are Protestants. Not one word of commendation. That's sad. He didn't point out any specific doctrinal problems. He didn't say that they were, you know, being seduced by any kind of false teachers or any kind of heresies. Their doctrine was fine. You know, they discovered the, the true gospel message of salvation in Christ alone. So he doesn't point out anything wrong with their... I don't know why they've got that one up there, but... But the problem with this church is that she had grown comfortable and content, and she was living on her past reputation. She was glorying in her past splendor, and she was ignoring her present decay. I see I'm going to run out of time. Let me just get to the details about the church. Historians tell us that the church in Sardis came into existence, and this is interesting, by the preaching of the Apostle John. Same human author of our book of Revelation. Now, if this is true, can you imagine how it must have broken his heart when he was told to record these words from Christ to the church which he had, you know, helped to found? When he wrote down those words, thou hast a name, but you're dead. That must have just broken his heart. Like the city in which it existed, the church, thinking she was secure, was really in constant danger. Like the city which had fallen, the church, because of a lack of vigilance, was in danger of falling. In fact, from the Lord's words to this letter, we get the impression that most of the members of this church had already fallen. They were already spiritually dead. There's only a remnant here that has any spiritual life in them at all, and even they have to be admonished to wake up and to uh, strengthen those things which remain. All right, let me see what I have. Let me just get to... I I can finish in two minutes. Is that all right? Maybe three, maybe four. Description of Christ. How, How is Christ described? We see that in, of course, each one of the designations the Lord gives of himself to a particular church, each one of those is tailored... 
to the specific needs and the characteristics of that particular church. Well, in this situation, to Sardis, he refers to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as we discuss when we look back at Revelation 1-4, the seven spirits of God is a reference to who? Seven spirits. Right, the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold ministry. Remember that? When we talked about that, it comes from Isaiah 11:2. We're given the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. It also represents, because it's seven, the Holy Spirit's complete work. Now, because of the Lord's mentioning here of the Holy Spirit, we might expect that what this dead Sardis church really needed was, what do you think? the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Sardis needed the quickening power of the Spirit of the living God in order to awaken her and to bring her back to life. The church of Sardis, just like the city in which it existed, had forgotten to be watchful. She had become lethargic in her routine religiosity, in her churchianity, and most of her members were not even spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit was not present in the church other than in the remnant, and most of the people didn't even notice. That's sad. They were merely going through the motions of religion without any reality. Those who were true believers, we said, had become sleepy. You know, their guard was down. And subsequently, they needed also to be revitalized by the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this church also needed the second thing, and with this we'll close, that Christ mentioned. They needed um, the watchful care of their guardian angels. He says, it's, he describes himself as the one holding the seven stars. Remember, we talked about the fact that they could either be the pastors of the churches or the, the, um, the angels, the guardian angels. Well, they needed their pastors. Either way you take it, they needed their pastors to be on guard and watching, and they needed their guardian angels to be on guard. But more importantly, this church needed to return to the one who holds those seven stars in his hand. They needed to return to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the life of the church, just as he is also the life of the individual Christian. He should have been given absolute possession of this church because he was its rightful head. He is its rightful head. And when he fills his rightful place in a church or in a person, then there is no spiritual vacuum which can give place to complacency and apathy and then eventual death. You see, although there was plenty of religious activity in Sardis, it was the kind which, for the most part, had displaced the Lord himself. There's a lot of churches that are very busy, aren't they? A lot of committee meetings and a lot of this and a lot of that. But no Christ. As we're going to see in our lesson next week when we talk more about the Reformation and the history of the Protestant church, there was still a compromise with the world which was seen in the establishment of the state churches, which, as I said earlier, made membership in the church a matter of physical birthright rather than through the spiritual new birth. A lot of churches do that to, you know, today. If you, take, if you learn the catechism and, and you're 12 years old or whatever it is, then you are brought into the church as a member of the church. Does anybody ask that child if he's been born again? So you see what happens. This leads to the idea that children born to Christian parents are automatically Christians themselves. And as time passes, those children grow up, and the church and oftentimes the pulpits begin to be filled with unbelievers to the point where eventually the tares outnumber the wheat. Now, we could well ask ourselves today, how many people in most Protestant churches know by way of practical experience, the truth of salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, how many have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus himself? You know, very sadly, this is a truth that has been lost to vast areas 
of organized mainline denominational Protestant churches. You can go to many and you will never hear how to be born again. Sad. I mean, it's in their creeds. Their creeds are fine. But they're not preaching the word. They're not preaching the gospel. What do we say the number one way to kill a church is? Not to evangelize. The Reformation began well. It began extremely well. We'll see that next week. Because it was God's work through godly men and women to bring his church back to his son, to bring his church back to his will and to his way of doing things and to his doctrine. But Satan, once again, moved into attack. And actually, his attack was very, very easy this time. You know what he did to attack this church? He just walked right in the front door of the church while the people inside were sleeping. Just like the city of Sardis. And he was very largely successful in his attack too. Although the Lord always has his remnant. But we know that Satan was successful because to the Sardis church, which represents the Protestant church era and Protestantism, Christ said, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead.